Good evening, Steeler fans. Welcome to another Wednesday night here on Behind the Steel Curtain Radio. And it is Wednesday night. It's time to turn our attention to the Steelers' upcoming opponent, the Oakland Raiders. Uh, Just start this show off uh, with with a somber note. Obviously, we just found out today that that Franco Harris is not going to make it to the uh, the 50th anniversary game. Uh, Rest in peace, Franco Harris. Uh, we're going to, we're going to talk about that. I think the second half of the show is going to be a lot about that and the legacy there. Uh, but for the first half of the show, we're going to be focusing on the upcoming game, uh, with me tonight as always, Shannon White. Shannon, how's it going? Hello, everybody. I want to thank you, GB, because you beat me to it by calling them the Oakland Raiders. (laughs) I had already decided that before the show, I'm just going to say Raiders. I'm not going to say, because I know I'll say oh, Oakland, but the you know, I'm excited about this upcoming game against the Las Vegas Raiders. And, um, Vegas Raiders. It, it's a, it's, you know, it's bittersweet today. Uh, I was talking to Dennis before the show there and about how the, you know, we didn't get John Madden or Franco Harris. They're not going to be able to be there at the 50th anniversary. And, and that's truly sad. And, because uh, we'd have loved to see them there and uh, for them to got to experience it, especially with the Steelers going to retire Franco's number. And um, But uh, one thing about it, it's definitely going to be a, a time of celebration, remembering Franco and and, uh, and, and the life lived and uh, a job well done. With us from the Oakland, to talk about the Oakland Raiders, is Dennis Ackerman from the Believe in Raiders podcast dennis how are you i'm doing well you can call him oakland all as much as you would like gentlemen because i'm old school i'm from the bay area had season tickets in oakland when they were growing up i actually went down to games in la and then when they uh returned to oakland had season tickets again so you know it still pains me that they they play in vegas it's like they're always going to be from oakland but their home is in vegas now that's the way i kind of reference it very rare very rarely do i say those two those two the words that begin with l and v i usually just call them the raiders in, yep. in my in our podcast along with former raider great stanford route so hey thanks so much for having me on i really appreciate it it's it's crazy to me that one of the most storied one of the legendary franchises in the NFL, in the Raiders, has has moved around so much. Like, that's that's what's crazy to me. Well, have you ever been to the Oakland Coliseum? <laughs> I, I, have seen, I, I have seen pictures, yeah. I, well, look, I, the I, first yeah. time around, Al Davis had this grand idea that, oh, you know, the, the, the Coliseum at that time in the late 70s, early 80s, sat about 55,000 people. And, you know, what started it was the Rams relocated from the – la coliseum to anaheim so al thought oh my gosh if i move the raiders down to la i'm going to be playing in front of 90 95,000 people you know every home game unfortunately al didn't understand the la market and that just doesn't happen down there so that was what started the first move and then when they came back you know they renovated it but it still was just basically they plopped a football stadium inside of a baseball stadium and it just you know they had all kinds of issues with the city and everything and unfortunately oakland is just a city that bleeds money. They have so many issues and they just couldn't find uh, enough funds to keep the Raiders there. And unfortunately they left for a second time. And, you know, growing up in the Bay area, I think there was always a feeling when they left the first time they were coming back. They, that was a, a strong feeling the entire yeah. 13 years they were gone this time they're gone. They're not coming back. 
you know, it's funny. There's a lot of similarities between Raider Nation and Steeler Nation. And the fact that you have lifers. There's a lot of teams that they go through, you know, uh, times of success and their fan bases go up and then they, they have their struggles. And, you know, a lot of people like to jump on bandwagons. But when you look at teams that have just had loyal fan bases, it's incredible how loyal the, the Raiders fans have been when they have moved so many times. And those same fans are still supporting them in Vegas. Uh, and, and and I think it speaks a lot about the fan base. Oh, it does. It's a very loyal fan base. Sometimes I wonder if it's a very intelligent fan base considering <laughs> what the product they've put on the field the last two decades or so. But there's one thing about Raider Nation. You can never doubt their loyalty. But, you know, one of the things that's interesting now that they're in Vegas, and I've been to a few games there. By the way, it is a beautiful stadium, but I am old school. I don't like going indoors and watching football. Uh, the only good thing is at least they still play on grass there in Vegas, but uh, it's a very foo-foo stadium. They really did a wonderful job, and I am glad that the Raiders actually now have a, a stadium, up-to-date art of the stadium uh, that they can call their own. But there is a lot of visiting fans uh, that have been going to Las Vegas to watch their team. I don't know if you guys got a chance to see uh, any of Sunday's game at the Patriots, but there was the announcers actually went silent because they wanted you to hear how many Patriot fans were there. And it was a third down with the Raiders had the ball on offense and it was very loud. And I've talked to Stanford route who has talked to many former Oakland Raiders. And he said, Dennis, there is no way that many visiting fans would ever be uh, at the Oakland Coliseum when the Raiders played there. And I'll say this about, I think the Steelers, I think the Raiders and I think the Packer fans are the three fan bases to me that travel the best. I don't know how you guys feel, but I would put those three at the top and you can mix them however you want, put them one, two, three. I don't really think it matters, but I think those are the top three fan bases in terms of travel for the NFL franchises. It makes sense that way because you have cities where people leave, right? Pittsburgh, yeah. one of the great <laughs> things is the, the, the reason we have fans everywhere is during the seventies while the Steelers are winning steel mills are closing down. People are leaving the area, young kids growing up, leaving, but that Steelers were ingrained in them. You get so many people like I, I lived in Chicago for two years. The number of people I met, they were telling me, man, you know, I, I'm a Steeler fan because my parents, like, I remember watching Steeler games and they were from Pittsburgh and they left in the 80s and like all this stuff. They grew up with that, even though they live somewhere else. And I, I think you see that a lot with, uh, with the teams that quote unquote travel well, but they do travel well. Uh, I know a lot of Steeler fans also go to a lot of road games. So it's, it's fun. Uh, now, one of the interesting things that's been recent is Ben Roethlisberger. I, I don't know if, like, he, he on the West Coast was terrible to the point that the Steelers would go to face the Raiders and lose no matter how bad the Raiders were that year and how good the Steelers should have been. They would lose. Uh, in fact, like, the like I think, I believe Devlin Hodges, uh, in his in his three career wins, has as many wins on the West Coast with two as Ben Roethlisberger <laughs> in his entire career. Uh, so for a while there, it was like going to Oakland was just bad news for the Steelers. Going to go face the Raiders was, was going to be a loss. But when you look at the stats here, the Raiders win pretty good in Pittsburgh. Uh, is, this, is this still a game that matters more than just a win or a loss? Is this a game that people actually really care about fans like from the Raiders side? Cause I know, I know there are some old people who really care about this game 
old Steeler fans who really care about this game. And a lot of younger people are like, why do you, why do you care about the Raiders? Uh, is that a thing for, for Raiders fandom or is this game kind of a rivalry that, that used to be? Oh no, I still think it's a big game. You guys, you know, the three of us were talking uh, earlier in the 1970s. Uh, I think this was arguably the greatest rivalry uh, in the NFL. I mean, how many straight yeah. years did these two franchises meet uh, in the NFL playoffs, uh, in the AFC playoffs, beg your pardon. What did they win? A combined five Super Bowls in the 70s. Yeah. I know that, you know, the Pittsburgh obviously got the four, then the Raiders uh, got one as well. And, you know, these two were, were probably the most two successful franchise along with the, the Dolphins and the Cowboys of the 1970s. And, you know, anytime that the Raiders uh, welcomed the Steelers uh, to Oakland, it was always a big deal. I know I went to a handful of games. Like with 2006, you mentioned Ben Roethlisberger. I think the Raiders had two pick sixes in that game and, and won the game with less than 100 yards of total offense. Uh, I know one year Terrell Pryor uh, had a 98-yard touchdown run, uh, and the Raiders uh, held on to beat the Steelers. So, yeah, the Raiders, where they were in, o- were in Oakland, definitely had some success against the Steelers. But, no, I think it's a big game, especially for people my age. I'm in my 50s, and every time the Raiders uh, and the Steelers play, you know, I have a, a lot of good friends. I used to work at CNN Sports back in the day in Atlanta. And let me tell you something. There was a lot of Steeler fans uh, in Atlanta. Uh, Steelers and, and the Washington football team were the two most popular franchises, I think, in my time when I was living in Atlanta. So I have a lot of friends who were Steeler fans. The same thing. They would circle the calendar also whenever the Raiders uh, and the Steelers would get together. I still think it's a good game. The rivalry, obviously, not what it was because the Raiders uh, had just haven't had the success uh, like they did back in the 1970s. But to me, it's still uh, a big game, uh, you know, especially we're coming up uh, Saturday's game will mark the 50, 50th anniversary of the Immaculate Reception. And I was just uh, texting with a friend of mine. I said, that play still kills me. To me, it never happened. And he texted me right back. That's the greatest play in NFL history. So <laughs> still have a lot of fun with it. Well, before I, uh, we start talking about the the current game coming up Saturday in both teams, we was talking before the show that you know, the Immaculate Reception, what it meant to the Steelers, you know, we understand that they were the laughing stock of the NFL. And it was it was just like a, a moment of relevance. And it changed them, give them a winning culture. It was such an integral part uh, of NFL history. And then since that time, the Steelers have been the most successful team of the modern era. Uh, oh, total wins, winning percentage, all that stuff. But if you look at the Raiders and what it meant to them in the fact that for the next decade, people don't realize the Raiders won more games than any other team in the NFL. And, you know, of course, they won the Super Bowl. And uh, John Mann's success, and and they used that moment. Uh, Al Davis especially, you know, he, he was always kind of the rebel, but then he felt like it was the world against the Raiders, you know, especially the NFL world. And and that was something that they used, you know, just win, baby. Uh, so it was it was such a huge moment for the NFL. It's something that I figured the Miami Dolphins wish would have never happened because those two teams pushed the Dolphins into where they really didn't matter. They were irrelevant in a few years after that play. So uh, I think it was it's such a huge moment, but actually for both franchises. Yeah, I agree. As you mentioned, the Dolphins, they kind of owned the early 70s. And then after that, it was kind of like the Raiders and the Steelers. And what's remarkable, and we were talking about this, they the Raiders and Steelers met three straight years in the AFC playoffs. You mentioned 72. That was kind of the start of where the Raiders are a great team, but they can't get over the hump. They kept losing to either Miami or they kept losing to the Steelers. And 
We're talking about the Raiders in 70, uh, 74 and 75. They went to Pittsburgh back-to-back years in the AFC Championship game, and they came up short. And then finally in 76, the Raiders went 13-1 and won that year. And the Steelers came to Oakland, and unfortunately for the Steelers, they were shorthanded. I don't think Franco played in that yeah, AFC Championship game. game. Yeah, and I don't think Rocky Blyer did either. So, yeah. you know, the Raiders won, but part of me thinks, well, you know what, I wish they would have been a full strength because I remember – Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Didn't the Steelers probably have their best defense in 1976 yeah. where they had a ridiculous yeah. five yeah. shutouts or something like that? And mm-hmm. nobody ever talks about that Steeler defense as being one of the best ever. But I remember it was a great one. But I was at that 76 championship game. Just a quick story for you. The Raiders had finally won. So back then you could run on the field and celebrate with the team. So, <laughs> you know, I'm eight years old. I'm running on the field with my brother. And the kicker, Roy Girilla, just drills me, runs me right over. I end up <laughs> on my back. I lose my program, and my brother grabs me. He's like, come on, we got to keep going. But, you know, I'm, I lost my program. So, of course, I'm eight and I'm crying. But, hey, at least the Raiders won. But uh, was a, a little story just, you know, for the Raiders and the Steeler fans back in the 70s, Roy Girilla was a name I wanted to bring up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, you missed one year. They met in 73 as well. Did they? Okay. So it was 72, 73. 74, 75, oh my 76. Goodness. It was that is five unreal. straight years. And I can tell you, there's a lot of Steeler fans right now that will tell you Franco Harris was healthy in 1976 for that game. After I think he ran for something like 130 yards against Baltimore the week before. Uh, like they're sitting there, they, they will they will tell you, oh, John Madden would have retired without a Super Bowl win. <laughs> yeah. they, they, and they and it matters to them because they hate the Raiders that much. Right. Uh, <laughs> but it was it's unparalleled the the amount of times those two two teams met up. These two teams now are in very different circumstances obviously and situations. Uh if you had to kind of give an overview of the state of the Raiders franchise right now. What what would that be? Where are the Raiders right now? You know, I think uh you can throw in a hat. You can throw the Raiders. I'll, I'll say the Broncos, uh, Green Bay, and maybe the Rams are the four biggest disappointing teams uh, this season. Now, the Raiders have kind of righted the ship uh, a little bit lately. They have won four of five. That lone loss was that disastrous Thursday night uh, loss down in L.A. to the Rams. And, uh, they lost 17 to 16 somehow. I don't know, to Baker Mayfield, who just basically flew in and decided to put on a uniform and <clears throat> beat the Raiders in the – on the the last drive of the game, but um, to start the season, you know what? It was just, they, I mean, they blew so many leads. They have blown four uh, double digit leads this season. Uh, they lost, uh, they were ahead of the Arizona Cardinals, 20 to nothing, the Jaguars, 17, nothing, the Chiefs, 17, nothing. And I just mentioned the Rams 16 to three and look at, they almost blew a double digit lead on Sunday uh, to the Patriots. And, you know, those bizarre endings usually go against the Raiders, but they finally got one to go their way uh, on Sunday. Uh, one of the reasons why they are playing better as of late, the defense has improved. It's given up about uh, 19 points a game compared to almost 30 uh, to start the season. Um, you can make the case that Josh Jacobs is the best running back in the NFL right now. Uh, before the season began, the Raiders decided not to pick up his fifth-year option. So uh, he leads the NFL in rushing. Uh, he's about to set a Raiders single season uh, rushing record, uh, surpassing the great Marcus Allen. He's going to get paid. Somebody's going to pay him, and I don't know who it's going to be. I would hope the Raiders uh, do resign him because they got some needs. They got some needs on the offensive line, especially on that right side, and they got some needs on the defense. Like I said, the defense has played better, but they need an overall upgrade of talent on that side of the football. You know, with all the the superstar quarterbacks. You know, moving around in the in the off season, uh, 
you know, when the, the Broncos got Russell Wilson, you know, they started saying they might compete with the Chiefs for the division. And I was like, well, you know, it, it usually takes a little bit of time to develop chemistry, you know, especially the type of quarterback Russell Wilson is. And and it just hasn't been there at all. The, the Broncos' offense has been anemic. And when the Raiders, I thought the Raiders could really challenge in that division because of getting Devontae Adams. And, uh, you know, of course, he already had chemistry from his time previous in college with Carr. Um, I've been a bigger Carr supporter than a lot of people at behind the steel curtain. Um, I think you can win with Derek Carr. Um, I think that uh, their offense isn't the issue. Um, as you said, Jacobs has just been, uh, you know, I understand it's a contract year, and we know that that makes a difference. But the guy is, you know, he really has found it this year. And you kind of root for the guy because of his story, you know, and I know you do. Um, but to me, part of their problem has been Waller. Because Waller, for a while, looked like he was one of the upper echelon tight ends. And this year, it, it just fell off the planet. And I know there's been injuries. And, but even when he before the injury, he wasn't connecting. It's like everything went to Adams. What has been your impression of Waller this year? Well, a couple of things. And you mentioned Darren Waller. He just came back from injury. He's been dealing with a hamstring uh, issue most of the year. He's only played in about uh, six, seven games, and they finally got Hunter Renfro back as well. So, you know, early in the season, uh, and, we, and we've heard about this, that Josh McDaniel's offense is a very complex one. And the Raiders didn't address that offensive line. And it was very leaky in the beginning. It struggled. Um, they were trying different offensive combinations. And Derek Carr is the kind of quarterback he needs a good offensive line to feel comfortable. If he doesn't have one, then he gets a little happy feet in that pocket and he's not comfortable and it shows. He will sometimes rush his throws. Do they have the skill players? Absolutely. Mentioned Devontae Adams. If he's not the best wide receiver, he's top two or three. Um, Hunter Renfro, Darren Waller, Josh Jacobs. The skill position players are there, but he didn't have a lot of confidence. Derek Carr, I'm talking about in that offensive line. I don't think he was comfortable in Josh McDaniel's system. I mean, Derek Carr has been the Raiders quarterback since 2014. He's on a sixth head coach. He's on his numerous offensive coordinators. He's constantly had to learn a new system uh, while he's been quarterback for the Raiders. And Derek Carr is also the type of quarterback he wants to please his head coach and he'll do whatever he can, whether, you know, John Gruden encouraged Derek to take off and run more. Josh McDaniels doesn't want him to do that. So I think sometimes Derek gets caught up in just pleasing my head coach instead of, you know what, I'm just going to go out and play. I'm going to wing it, and let's just see what happens. And, guys, I noticed – I did some research for my podcast that I'm taping tomorrow with Stanford, and I mentioned those four blowing losses. Uh, when the Raiders got out to those big leads in those four games, after that, they've been outscored 100-18. to 18. I mean, that is just a startling number. In four games, 100-18, to 18, and I'm – and I just look back at the games, and I think it's twofold. I think one of the things is sometimes Josh McDaniel's play calling has been suspect, and he's been called out on that on numerous times. I think oftentimes you hear it's, it's a cliche, but I think it's true with this, especially in the Rams game. The Raiders played not to win. 
They didn't play to win. They played not to lose, I should say. I beg your pardon. Yeah. And I think that has been the case when they blow in the big leads against the Cardinals, against the Jaguars. The Chiefs, I'm going to give a mulligan to because, let's face it, the Chiefs can come back on anybody. We've seen it yeah. in the playoffs, and we've seen it in the regular season. But those three games right there, if you take those three games, the Raiders go from 6-8 and eight to 9-5, and five, and they could possibly clinch a playoff spot mm-hmm. if, if they could beat the Steelers on Saturday. So that's the difference. I mean, it's they always say it's a fine line between winning and losing, and I, that stat right there alone tells you, you know, the difference between being possibly nine and five, but you are what your record says you are and you're six and eight. What what do you think the keys are for the Raiders if they're going to beat the Steelers here? Because I do want to bring up one thing. We talked about how many times the Steelers and Raiders met in the playoffs back in those rivalry days. This has one thing in common. Whoever wins this game is still alive in the playoff hunt technically <laughs> thinnest of margins whoever loses this game is out this is an elimination game whoever loses this game you will not make you cannot make the playoffs no uh probably not going to anyways but uh for the for the raiders to win this game what are, what do you what do you think the keys are for their team well, look, I, I and I don't know if this has been updated, but I saw what the windshield five below game time uh, Saturday <laughs> night. So <laughs> Raiders, the Raiders going outdoors and playing in those conditions. Now they have played in cold weather in Kansas City and Denver, so it's not like they've never played in it. You know, the Raiders are a run first offense, even though they have those weapons uh, with Waller and, and Adams and Renfro. They are a run first offense with Josh Jacobs. But I know on the flip side now, the Steelers' strength of that defense is their run defense. So can the Raiders get that passing game going in the cold weather? I'm going to be really interested to see how they do. And defensively, uh, I know Kenny Pickett is back. Uh, The Raiders have stepped up defensively, like I mentioned, in the last five games. Uh, Max Crosby's got to get after it. If he can uh, pressure Kenny Pickett, I think that's going to be the key uh, to the Raiders' defense. Chandler Jones has been playing much better of late. You know, he had the the, – the fumble return on the final play of the game to beat the Patriots. <laughs> yes, the stiff arm against Mac Jones, <laughs> which is an all-timer. Uh, he had three sacks uh, against the Rams, so he's been playing better late. So their pass rush has improved. They've been creating more turnovers as well. But I'm going to be very interested to see how this team goes outdoors in that kind of weather um, and performs. And then the other thing is Derek Carr. Um, he is throwing in his last four games. He's throwing six interceptions, and two of those have been pick sixes. So can Derek take care of the football? Can they run it effectively with Josh Jacobs? And can Jones and, make your pardon, Max Crosby get after the quarterback? Yeah, I'm just a huge Max Crosby fan. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I can only imagine how much the Raiders fans love him. His enthusiasm, his passion um, – I've said in an article this week, he reminds me of Kevin Green. Oh, wow. That's a great comparison. I mean, if you look at him and and the way he plays, it's like his hair's on fire. He's going 110 every play. And and his condition is incredible because he's still doing it at the end of the games. So, you know, we was concerned about somebody said, well, Dan Moore is going to have to try to block him, but actually it'll be a core for it. Is going to be the guy that's going to be responsible to try to block him. And whoever it is, I hope they give him a little help, you know, maybe a chip or whatever, because if you just leave Crosby alone one-on-one, <laughs> there's nobody really in the NFL going to block him all night. And he and he's just that kind of disruptive player. Chandler Jones was the surprise in that he started the year with no sacks mm-hmm. for, what, the first six, seven games? And But as you said, he's starting to – 
to give them that bookend. And and that I think that's why the defense has really started to come around for him. Um, I have to mention it. Uh, that stiff arm, you know, Jones is the type of guy, I don't know if it's where he was at Alabama, but he has a certain edge to him. So, you know, going to the Patriots, he's a guy that's kind of easy not to like. <laughs> and the fact that he got – I mean, it was like Mortal Kombat, you know, finish him. You know, he planted him. You know, I mean, I expected there to be a great a headstone there right there in the field where he planted him. And I mean, what did you how did you react when that happened? I would I would have lost my mind. Well, so okay, so it's three seconds left, and you figure, okay, maybe they're gonna throw a Hail Mary and we're going to overtime, you know. So they hand it off, and Stevenson's got a nice run, and then he lathers it. To Myers, and I'm thinking, yeah. okay, but I'm like, Myers has got no place to go. And then Myers starts running back towards the original line of scrimmage. I'm like, what is he thinking? The game is tied. Yeah. You're going to overtime. Why don't you just take a knee or run out of bounds? And when, when he threw it, I turned to a friend I was watching the game. With, I'm like, you know, they better be careful because we've seen things like this where the, the other team picks it up and scores, never thinking. I, I really wasn't. I wasn't thinking that that was going to happen. And then when Chandler Jones caught it, I stood up and I started walking towards the TV and I'm like, oh my gosh, the Raiders, I think, are going to actually win this game. And when he stiff-armed Matt Jones, it was over. And I was like, wow, what a game. Like, Because like I said, the Raiders so many times have given games away like that. And yeah. just to see Chandler Jones running down the field and then I, what they did immediately when he scored, when the score changed, there also was a flag. There was a graphic that said there was a flag on the play. So I'm like, oh, gosh, don't tell me that this is going to be a penalty on the Raiders. It's going to nullify the touchdown, and then we're going to go to overtime. And then, no, the Raiders were celebrating. Belichick was walking over, wait, ready to hug McDaniels. And I said, oh, my gosh, the Raiders have gone this. I'm like, this has got to be the stupidest play that I think I've ever seen. And the fact <laughs> that it came from the Patriots and Bill Belichick makes it even that much sweeter. All right, and I got a little trivia for you guys, okay? And this is it's it's Raiders, but I think you might still get it. You guys are of the age. The last time an NFL game was decided on a fumble recovery prior to Sunday, prior to Sunday's game. Go way remember. back. Go way back. I'm going to give you clues. It was it the Holy Roller. There you go. Great job, really? Shannon. Oh. Dave yeah. Casper, the Holy Roller. That was oh, the last time the game was, the last time. The the game was decided on a fumble recovery. Yeah, it was the yeah. Holy Roller with the Raiders and Dave Casper. <laughs> That's impressive, Shannon. You got that. Nice job. All right. That's All only right, what Dennis, I can remember. <laughs> before we let you go here real quick, uh, do you have a final score prediction for us? You know what? I was feeling good about the Raiders, uh, even going back east into that cold weather, but – Unfortunately, with the passing of Franco Harris, I just think I don't think the Steelers are going to lose without the, the, the we got the you know the 50 year anniversary of the Immaculate Reception. We got Franco's passing away. I think it's going to be hard for the Raiders to overcome. Uh, I'm going to go Steelers. Uh, you know, it's going to be a close game. The Raiders just play a lot of close games. I think they played 11 one score games. I think it'll be a close one. I'll go 24 21 Steelers. All right, let everyone know where they can uh, see your stuff, hear your podcast. Whatever you have going. It's it's the Believe in Raiders podcast. I host it with former Raider, uh, great uh, quarterback, um, Stanford route. And we're recording one uh, tomorrow night. Stanford's a little under the weather, unfortunately. But it's it's the Believe. It's on the Believe Network, and it's the Believe in Raiders podcast. Like I said, I co-host it with former Raider, uh, Stanford route. So, guys, really appreciate you having me on. I had a lot of fun with this tonight, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, thank Dennis. you, Dennis. Thank you so much for coming. We're going to take a short commercial break. Merry Christmas. And uh, – if you're if you're hanging with us on the show, just just stay tuned. We'll be right back. And we're back. 
Shannon, Franco Harris. <laughs> it's mm. it's hard. It's hard to talk about uh, any any Steeler from that era and their significance because there were so many great ones. Uh, but I always go back to the quote uh, from from Art Rooney that the Steelers didn't win much before Franco got there, and they didn't lose much after he got there. Uh, what what are your thoughts on Franco's significance to the franchise? Obviously, we, we credit people like Mean Joe Green. We always give Mean Joe Green a ton of credit. Mm-hmm for turning around the defense. Uh, where, where do you rank Franco Harris's impact on this franchise? Is that, I mean, even if that's a thing you can even do, uh, but how important was he? Well, if there was a Steelers Mount Rushmore, you know, you, he would have to be considered. Uh, yeah. And the fact that you have Mr. Rooney, but of course, Dan Rooney, uh, you know, is the architect of the dynasty. Um, Major Green was the foundation that changed everything. But Franco Harris made the play. I mean, yeah. the, you know, I heard somebody said that it wasn't a surprise that Franco Harris made the immaculate reception because he had immaculate timing. You know, when he came to Pittsburgh, it was the perfect storm. Mm-hmm. You know, him coming in and his... Uh, what he brought with his running ability and and um, his personality and his fit in the the, the city and the the community, um, you know, Italian army, you know, Franco's Italian army, and and people just what he meant to the immigrants and, and that the people of the city, um, it, it tied them, it united them with the Steelers in a way they never had before. I mean, yeah. it's incredible when you consider that a lot of the players worked in the steel mills in the offseason, and still, you know, they never had that kind of ties and bond to the team like they did when, once Franco arrived. Um, I don't even want to imagine what the Steelers would have been without Franco Harris. Um, you know, just the, the that play alone. But then look at what all he'd done in his life after that. Not only a Hall of Fame career, and, and what are the running back can you compare to Franco Harris? You, you, the way he ran, the way his height, his upright running style, he had impeccable balance, uh, which is something that a lot of tall guys don't have. You know, he didn't have that speed like Eric Dickerson or some of the other taller runners. Uh, he wasn't the power back that a, you know, uh, Eddie George or a, um, a modern day. Uh, I can't even think of the guy for the Titans now. Yeah, um, that's aggravating. I can't think of his name. Who's the Titans running back? Oh, oh you're talking about Derrick Henry. Derrick yeah, Henry. Derrick Henry. You know, I, it was blank in my mind there for yeah, a moment. I, I would blank too, but those guys had more speed than Franco had. But he had them just that nimble feet. He, you could tell he'd have been an excellent dancer. And uh, he just fit what the Steelers had in the 70s perfectly. And he carried those first two Super Bowl teams. It wasn't the Bradshaw in the passing game. It was the running game. And and with him and Rocky. And uh, so, yeah, it's – it was. I knew it was going to be hard for me to talk about Franco tonight because I was so excited about him getting his number retired. Yeah. This will be the third time, third number ever retired by the Steelers. And it's, it's well-deserved. 
And I just wish he would have been there to been able to experience that. But hopefully we can can make this into a celebration of, of a man's life who was so much more than just a football player. You said he had the perfect timing for coming here. And I was looking up some numbers, and I love I love digging into statistics. I'm a huge nerd. Uh, but he, here's something interesting I found, all right? If you if you go past 1969, I don't like going 1969 earlier. Chuck Knoll's first year was one of the worst in the franchise's history. But 1970, 1971, you start seeing Chuck Knoll's imprint. You start seeing the culture being built. You start seeing the team being built. But in 1970 and 1971, the Steelers' offense was 21st in scoring, 15th in rushing yards. The two years, Franco Harris's first two years, they're fifth in rushing yards, they're third in points. Mm-hmm. And they go his first year, the best season Pittsburgh's ever had. Mm-hmm. They go to the playoffs, and Franco Harris's, you know, deflected ball, catch, run for a touchdown gives the franchise its first playoff win ever. And that's, you know, that's that's Franco Harris. And you go over the next so many years, that offense is top 10, constantly top five. It's it's one of the best offenses in football. And another, one of the, one of the things that really stood out to me is they went from uh, ranked 19th and 22nd, like they're in, in 70 and 71, in turnovers committed by the team, right? They were towards the bottom of the league, one of the worst for committing turnovers. Franco Harris shows up the second fewest in the NFL. And the big thing was Terry Bradshaw threw fewer interceptions when Franco Harris was there. And that that just made me think of this year for the Steelers, where like you can see when the run game gets going, Mm -hmm. the quarterbacks take care of the football. When they can't get the run game going, all of a sudden, Mitch Trubisky or Kenny Pickett, whoever it is, they're forcing things. They're pushing the ball. They're trying to make something happen, and you get interceptions. Franco Harris changed completely the Pittsburgh Steelers' offense, and he changed their fortunes with that, with just his arrival. Uh, and it just it took me back to the old, you know, the the Pittsburgh polka, uh, where they say Franco, Franco. Now the Steelers have the running game. Uh, which is great for the I, I love the the cheesy lyrics and everything, but that really was it. Franco Harris brought the run game to the team, and their offense suddenly worked. Like Franco showed up, and the offense worked. You know, we we've talked a lot about when it comes to Hall of Fame uh, players. I want to I don't want just the guys with the most statistics. If I go to the Hall of Fame, I need what I want to see. Uh, I want to see. Not only guys that had statistics and pro bowls and all pros, but big game players, guys oh, yeah. that came through in the biggest games. And Franco Harris always, like you said, the 76 in the playoffs, had he not been injured because he always showed up and showed out at the biggest moments. Mm-hmm. That first, you know, he was MVP of his first Super Bowl and dominated. The, yes, the defense dominated the Vikings. But people don't realize how great that Vikings defense was and, and what and what they had accomplished that year. And Franco ran over them, around them, and through them. And they mm-hmm. had no answers for him. But he was unique. No other running back ran the ball the same way that Franco did. 
And I say one of our commenters was talking about his vision. And, and that was incredible. He had an incredible vision. And he was so patient. And you never rushed him. He he always had that same speed. You know, and yep. he could accelerate a little bit, take a little bit off and on, but he, he just he ran that same steady, balanced style. And and he just did it to perfection. And I don't think we'll ever see another running back uh, of his size and skill set uh, just like him, you know, because he was unique. Um, but, yeah, the the all those years that the, the Steelers offense showed improvement, it was probably, what, 77, 78, before Bradshaw called up to the rest of the offense. And then you really got to see – Swan and Stallworth and some of them guys take off. Um, and I, I really, that's the thing that I think people don't understand is that a lot of guys are great till they get to the biggest moments and that other team is bound and determined to stop you because they know, everybody knew that Franco was the star, uh, the straw that stirred the drink, so to speak. And they still couldn't stop him. But, yep. you know, so you take the vision, you take the talent, but he also had that, that demeanor, that calm demeanor, and that intelligence that he he would not allow himself to be taken out of the game. I, I believe that Super Bowl, he, they, the Steelers ran for more yards uh, than the Vikings had given up, like, in any game. Like, that defense had never given up that many yards. And he, mm-hmm. he ran personally himself 158 yards and a touchdown in that mm-hmm. Super Bowl. Just – carrying the Pittsburgh Steelers to that win. Uh, I want to, I want to move past Franco as the player because, and I, I want to know if you have uh, any memories of Franco Harris outside of football and let you have a moment to think about. It. I can tell you, I only ever met the man one time. It was uh, my wife was in grad school in 2004 and 2005. We left Pittsburgh uh, like we, we left Pittsburgh right after Ben Roethlisberger was drafted. Like the, the, like two weeks later, we left Pittsburgh for Chicago. Uh, and so the two years out, the only, I was only in Chicago for two years, but it was 2004 and 2005. And so 2005 Super Bowl's coming up. Uh, we flew back to Pittsburgh for my birthday, which is the end of January. And then I actually got, took a, took, uh, an extra day off work. Cause I'd taken some time off. And extended it, got a new plane ticket so I could watch the Super Bowl in Pittsburgh uh, with, with you know, family and friends. And then the day I go to fly back, I'm in the airport and Franco Harris has gotten back from Detroit and is walking through the airport. And I remember seeing him and like the place, the, the whole airport was just crazy energy because people are coming back and people are that came to Pittsburgh for it or leaving. And uh, I remember him stopping, talking to people. I remember him waving to people. Uh, like, people were just yelling, Franco! Like, people were just yelling for him, everything. I just remember, I mean, it's not much. I, I like, I didn't really have any any real, you know, close contact with him. Uh, but I just remember how patient, how how constantly, like, embracing who he was to the fans. Uh, I remember that, and that that stood out to me how how gracious he was, you know, getting off a plane flight, coming home, and just just 
spending like had his bags there, had his suitcase mm-hmm. with him, and he's spending time talking to people. Uh, so that always stood out to me. You know, it's funny. It doesn't surprise me that you said that uh, and that that was your experience. Um, you know, I've, I, we had Dwight Stone on our show last week, and yeah. I, I wish you could have been there. We missed you. And, but uh, I told him, you know, I've never asked for an autograph, and I haven't. <clears throat> I'm not a respecter of person. Uh, I admire the way a person plays and represented the Steelers. Uh, the way they represent the Steelers, you know, off the field and after their career. And, and I would have loved to have shaken his hand and just thanked him for yeah. being such a great ambassador for all things Pittsburgh Steelers. I'd always hoped that, you know, when we would visit up there, because he was always present, that we would, you know, I would maybe get a chance to meet him someday, but never got to. But, you know, the one thing, people that, you know, had a lot of, business associates from the Pittsburgh area and friends up in the Pittsburgh area. And through the years, you know, I heard about, you know, Hey, this kid, this rookie quarterback, Ben Roethlisberger, man, this guy's a total jerk. I mean, and I'd hear all these horror stories and, and then, you know, eventually thankfully they got better, but, but you'd also hear about other players that, that, you know, personality wise, just, you know, Jack Lambert, you know, uh, yeah. during his tenure. Now, later on, a guy that, that a family friend, he was part of a, a work crew and they happened to be at a bar. Uh, and I can't remember if it was in Montana or Wyoming, somewhere out in there. And they, and Jack Lambert happened to come in and they were all kind of scared. They recognized him. They were scared to approach him. But so finally, you know, my friend went up and talked to him and said he was cordial and he bought everybody a drink and, but you could tell that was just who he was. He was, you know, he, he didn't want, you know, yeah. a big deal made out. And he liked his privacy and they respected that. Everybody I've ever talked to that has had the pleasure of meeting Franco Harris, the word gentleman, mm-hmm. gentle or gentleman or cordial or, you know, just, you know, over a lifetime, you know, his, his, his most of his adult life was spent in Pittsburgh. And when you have that type of reputation, um, in our article that uh, we've put comments and memories uh, that'll be coming up uh, about Franco Harris, um, I say that we preach our own funeral by the life we live. And um, all I can say about Franco Harris is job well done. Yeah. Yeah, he is he is truly a great ambassador. You hear all the things uh Mike Tomlin talked about him. Jerome Bettis uh has said quite a few things about mm-hmm. Franco Harris. They had a good relationship. Uh but a quality, a quality guy. He's he's gonna be missed. And it's 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 sad to me, and it's such a crazy timing. It's so shocking. Like I spent mm-hmm. most of this morning being like, I don't like what are we gonna do? <laughs> I had to talk to Brian. I was like, what are we gonna do for our show tonight? Like yeah. Holy crap, like this is this is crazy the timing. Uh but I don't know, it's a reminder we're, none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh but that's just kind of turned this week from a you know, a, it, it's still a celebration of Franco. It's just a remembrance of him now instead of a a moment yeah. he's going to share with us. Uh, who's going to who's going to fill those shoes? 
Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, you lose a guy like Myron Kovic, then you, you lose a guy like Tony Chilkin and, yeah. and Dan Rooney. And, and now, I mean, uh, there's so many of the, the, the great ones. Um, you know, I feel sorry for me and Joe and that he's the last, of the, you know, of his four buddies there, Yeah, you know, one of the greatest defensive lines in history. And, and he's the last, you know, one remaining. And, um, we need to value uh, and 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 respect, you know, what they mean and what they meant uh, to yeah. the the franchise that we all love so much. And uh, a lot of our fandom. I mean, uh, when I started liking the Steelers, they wasn't the 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 laughable losers that they had always been. And part of that reason was because Franco Harris changed that uh, forever. And uh, so, um, you know, I think that, that this weekend hopefully will be a fitting tribute to a great man. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, I do want to get a little bit. <laughs> we do. We do need to talk a little bit more about the game coming this week. Um, do you, uh, the Steelers this week, obviously, I believe Kenny Pickett is coming back. Uh, we've got the, the, the weather forecast. All of that. <laughs> what kind of what kind of game do you have any expectations for this game, Shannon? Uh, what what are you what do you think is going to be this game is going to be like? The, this Steeler team, um, partly because of all the youth and and the new faces and new places, but it's been very hard to predict. Uh, I thought that I did not like the matchup against the Carolina Panthers because of their running game. Yeah. And they've run the ball on some really good run defenses. They've been successful. And the Steelers held them to 21 yards. I mean, um, you've seen a totally different aggressive mindset. They won their blocks. You know, they defeated their blocks. And and Hayward and uh, uh, Ogunjobi just – the first play of the game, Ogunjobi set the, the, uh, the bar high. I mean, because he'd come in there and for a tackle for loss right on the first play. And you just seen the physicality. And they even run Mark Robertson out there. And, you know, he might not know what he was doing, but he was attacking the line of scrimmage. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, that's what he showed in the preseason. He could fill yep. them running lanes. And that's what I've been wanting to see, especially against the run-heavy teams like the Falcons and the, and the Ravens, is, you know, he will meet a guy and lay a lick on him in the hole. And we needed that at times this year. Um, so I, I've been off on my predictions a lot this year and my <laughs> expectations. And I was concerned about Jacobs because Jacobs is running really hard this year. Oh, yeah. He, and, and they're really staying committed to that run. Even if you stop them on first down, they still hit you again on second down. Uh, and they don't abandon it very quickly at all. And he's having an excellent season. But I'll tell you, with this happening, uh, with the 50th anniversary, I just think that changes the dynamics. Um, I think the weather is going to impact the um, – is going to affect or, or limit the impact that the advantage that Devontae Adams has uh, going up against the Steeler secondary. Um, and I think that, that – they're going to really be fired up again and we'll see a similar effort than what we saw against the Panthers. And um, 
I expect to to be a, a low scoring game, but I do think that the Steelers are going to play inspired and and they're they're going to win that one for Franco. I hope you're I hope you're right. I uh, the one concern I do have is Devontae Adams, mm-hmm. uh, being being a, a Green Bay Packer for so long. Uh, this this wind chill, all this is not going to bother him. He he is he's used to that. Uh, and he is absolutely killing it this year. I, uh, he's having a fantastic season, mm-hmm. and the Steelers have not had much success covering real number one receivers, and he is one. He's oh, yeah. one of the top yeah. three receivers in the league. That worries me a bit. Uh, Josh Jacobs obviously being that good. The I've got an article with Dave Schofield coming out, um, looking to come, I think, Thursday. Uh, about either tomorrow or Thursday about the Steelers run defense in that game and what they did to really take away Carolina's run game entirely. Uh, but one of the things they did is they, they were super aggressive against the run and they kind of dared mm-hmm. Carolina to beat them passing. They're like, go ahead, like throw mm-hmm. on us. Sam Darnold's not going to beat us. And he didn't. Mm-hmm. He actually had a really good game. He was very efficient, al- almost 10 yards per attempt for his passing game. But it didn't matter. They knew, like, they're like, okay, yeah, we're, we'll we'll give you favorable passing situations. If we shut down your run, you're not going to be able to beat us. And that was the case. You can't do that with Josh Jacobs. You can't defend Josh Jacobs and say, okay, we'll, we'll not worry and, and make you beat us passing because Devontae Adams and Derek Carr will beat you throwing the ball. So I am worried about the Steelers' uh, defense being able to shut down this offense, we'll see. Uh, I, I I happen to agree with our guests. I think it's going to be a close game. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'll give you my score prediction right now. I, I actually was going to pick 24-21. I was going to pick that. Uh, but I'm going to have to pick something different now. So I'm going to go – I'm going to go 23 – I'm going to go 23-20. I'm going to drop one point off each. They say a couple field goals for each side. I think the Steelers win – and I think it's going to be a fourth quarter comeback, maybe, maybe with a defensive, some defensive plays to get the ball away from, away from the Raiders, from Las Vegas. Got it right this time. Uh, <laughs> but I do, I do think the Steelers win, but I would not be shocked. I would not be shocked at all if the, if the Raiders pulled this out. Uh, Shannon, what's your? Do you have a score prediction? Yeah. I'm- I, it's so difficult to be to really negative four, I think, or whatever the yeah. wind show factor. And it, you know, the, the wind, it's harder to kick the ball, it's harder to throw the ball to catch them. So, I do expect it to be a lower scoring game. Uh, you know, I, I'm really having more and more faith in the Steelers' offensive line to be able to effectively you know, open lanes for Harris and Warren and company. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I was kind of leaning one way or the other because of the Raiders always give the Steelers fits. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, kind of the Steelers kryptonite, if you will. But I'm leaning down because of everything that's happened. Uh, I think it will be lower scoring. I think it's like 20 to 17. Uh the Raiders for, the Steelers forced them to kick a really short field goal because I don't think we're going to see any long ones. 
But I'm going to say like 2017 Steelers. Okay. I, I, I also wanted to throw this in. This is the stat I wanted to throw in. The Raiders, I, I find this game interesting because, okay, let me set this up for you. Kenny Pickett. Right, everyone. He's supposed to play this week. Everyone said, you know, he's got small hands. He's not going to be able to play when the ball gets cold. He's not. He's going to have trouble in windier games. He doesn't have a cannon for an arm. Well, this is your game, right? Yeah. And if if Kenny Pickett is going to fall apart when it's cold and windy, well, here's your here's your chance. Uh, here's your chance to see it, and it's a perfect game because the Raiders are a bottom ten pass defense team. Right, the Steelers mm-hmm. should be able to throw the ball in this game if their quarterback and receivers can play in this weather. But Derek Carr doesn't wear gloves, and he will definitely have to Saturday. Whereas Kenny yeah. Pickett always wears gloves. He so to, he there's another advantage. Yep. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, we'll see. We'll see. I I really think that that this is a game that's very interesting for that factor, that if, if you were one of those people or if you know people, you probably heard it this offseason with Kenny Pickett, small hands, can't play in the cold weather. Well, here's your game. Yep. This Definitely. is absolutely your game that you want to see. Uh, and, and, you know, you, you, you might want to, you might want to send some people some text messages if the Steelers win and, and send him a little message and say, hey, it looks like Kenny with his small hands did pretty well. That's like, I think he's going to. I think he's going to be fine. Yeah, I know you're going to ask me anyway, but, you know, anything coming up and oh, yeah. everything. And, but that kind of brings me back to my, the subject matter of my next article. If you look at this year's playoffs, maybe one of the most critical playoffs in recent memory for the NFL. Mm-hmm. especially for the quarterback position. And here's why. The AFC has the elite quarterbacks, and the NFC has the elite rosters. If the NFC, whether it's the Eagles or the Niners, lift the Lombardi Trophy at the end of this season, that will show that you can win a Lombardi Trophy with a mere mortal behind center. Because Jalen Hurts is tier two at best, you know, he's good, but he's not yeah. Mahomes, Allen, you know, Herbert. He's the next level down. And then the Niners keep winning with Mr. Irrelevant himself, Brock Purdy, you know, just orchestrating that incredible roster. They are so deep and talented, both teams, especially on both foundations. So it could change the way people look to build teams moving forward instead of overspending – like, you look at the Broncos, what they give up for Wilson, mm-hmm. what the Browns give up for Watson. Those teams don't look like they're anywhere near a Super Bowl. These other teams built, spent their money across, evenly across that roster. They have no glaring weaknesses. They have no depth issues. Depth issues, And they've got solid quarterback play. Kenny yep. Pickett can be that. He can offer the Steelers that. And if he does prove to be the real deal, the Steelers have a blueprint that makes sense. The The Tampa Bay Buccaneers bringing in Brady and, and the way that happened, that's not doable. That's that's a rare occurrence. The Rams, they put the house to win it last year, and now yep. we see they're in bad shape, and they're going to be for a while. Yep. The two blueprints that everybody needs to be paying attention to is 
Do you give 40 plus million a year to a quarterback? Or do you spread that money out, build two dominant rosters like the Eagles and the Niners, and then can you win a championship with a mere mortal behind center? So that's what my next article is about. And I'm really fascinated for these playoffs and the Super Bowl because I want to see, you know, if it if the Chiefs or the Bills win it, even the Bengals with Burrow, you know, he might crash the party. Then, you know, you're still it's going to be quarterbacks, franchise quarterback. They're going to make that money. But if not, people might have to, you know, readjust their thinking. All right. Well, that that's it for our show for tonight. We already covered our what's coming out. Uh, I already talked about my vertex on the Steelers' run defense. Shannon White talked about that. Uh, so, hey, there, there we covered our bases there. Um, thank you, everyone, in the live chat. Thank you for listening. Thank you, everyone, listening on to this on uh, a podcast format. Make sure you're clicking on all the Behind the Steel Curtain shows. We're going to have some articles uh, remembering Franco coming out, our, our memories and our thoughts on him. Uh, other shows are definitely going to be talking about him, probably even more than we did today. Uh, every, everyone's going to get be taking their shot at remembering Franco Harris. So, so make sure you're checking into all that, tuning in. Uh, click over to BehindTheSteelCurtain.com. Thank you so much for listening. As always, have a great week, and let's go Steelers. Merry Christmas. <laughs>